Welcome to Breast Cancer Update Surgical Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Charles Geyer, and to begin, he presented a patient from his practice. Back in summer of 2015, I saw a 46-year-old premenopausal woman who had presented for diagnostic mammography after she noted uh, thickening in her right breast. She had very dense breast parenchyma, but the ultrasound was able to see about a two-centimeter mass. Biopsy of the mass showed a grade two invasive lobular that had ER staining intensity of two plus in 30% of cells and PR intensity of three plus in about 30% of cells. The KI-67 was also quite elevated at 35%, but the tumor was HER2 negative. Her breast MRI though showed, which isn't surprising with lobular, a larger area of enhancement that measured four by 3.2 sonometers. So we kind of thought that with lobular histology, this was probably more extensive than was suggested by the mammogram ultrasound. Now, this key 67 she had done, was that a local assay done in your place? Yes, yeah. And this was some years ago. Yeah, this was the local assay that we have in our hospital. And it is interesting, you know, she had this elevated key 67, and yet your ER wasn't that high, PR wasn't really that high. How reliable are Q67s in your viewpoint? They're the thing that I rely on the least. If they are consistent, I guess I sort of believe it. If they're inconsistent, it's the thing that I look more for additional confirmation on. And, you know, the case with her is she was initially, there was some interest in breast conservation. She had the lobular histology, dense parenchyma. So we decided in her, and with that KI-67 kind of thinking, well, we're probably going to be giving chemotherapy, even though there's that whole question about, well, does lobular respond to chemotherapy? So we had sent the tumor for an oncotype and were a bit surprised that it came back quite low at 10. The other thing that we did in her was she did have enough family history that we did genetic testing and it turned out she had a deleterious CHECK2 mutation. So she opted to go ahead and have bilateral mastectomies and not have the breast conservation. But at the point where when we were first getting things going, there was a question of neoadjuvant. So that's why we had the oncotype score done pre-op. So you said she had a check too. So this is a germline mutation she Correct. had. Uh-huh. And of course, now we're hearing not only about BRCA, but a bunch of, you know, different, you hear them calling different things, but DNA damage repair is one term you hear. What is check two and how does that fit in? It's in that family. It's not a real high relative risk indicator. It's the risk of breast cancers like double colorectal cancer is up a bit. You know, those are the two main tumor types, so it's not a real strong one. But, you know, in her with the lobular histology, there was always the question about breast conservation versus bilateral with the lobular histology. And then when we got the CHECK2 deleterious mutation, it crystallized the treatment and she wanted to go ahead and have the surgery. At surgery, we found, you know, which is not unusual with lobular, we found more in the breast than what the imaging had suggested. She actually had five discrete foci of invasive lobular carcinoma, the largest measured four and a half centimeters. She had a sentinel node procedure done, and actually the yield was quite high, which 
is gratifying. You're happy to see that with Lobular. Uh, there were actually eight Sentinel nodes identified, and we did check them all with IHC. We tend to do that with Lobular, and they were all negative for cytokeratin on IHC as well as H&E. You mentioned cytokeratin. Are you still looking at that? Do people look at that now? Well, for lobulars, where we have a worrisome lobular in the breast, we go ahead and do that. It's not hmm. at all routinely. It's very much specific to lobular. Oh, interesting. And where you're wanting to make that decision about chemotherapy, yes or no. Because sometimes if your pathologist does IHC stains, they'll go from node negative to actually seeing cancer in several nodes, which would clearly alter our treatment approach generally. So the thing that was interesting with her was, you know, okay, so we have negative nodes, but we do have this very large T2 tumor, other areas of tumor. We had kind of ERPR that were not real strong, a high KI67, yet this oncotype that seemed to be discordant with our IHC results. And what I did in this case, and I still do from time to time, is I will get a kind of a referee opinion, more or less. So we sent the breast tumor itself off for mammoprint, and that returned low risk, and the blueprint was consistent with luminal A cancer. So it reinforced the findings of the oncotype, so we kind of had consistency with our genomic panel markers. It was some discordance with our IHC. So we basically treated her based on the genomic marker concordance. So what specifically did you treat her with? We started her on Zolidex, and then shortly thereafter began letrozole. She had intended to undergo oophorectomy within the next six months because of the CHECK2 mutation. So we just bridged her with the Zolidex until she had that done, and then placed her on the letrozole. And I'm a believer in the ABCSG18 data. I tend to use the denosumab every six months supporting AI therapy in my patients that I'm treating with AIs from the start. So that's why she's on the nadosumab. So I guess if you take a look back at this case here, you've got a lady who's got a fair amount of tumor, one 4.5 centimeters, and yet she did not get chemotherapy. You did not recommend chemotherapy. Can you talk a little bit about the data, particularly the data we have, not only from the recurrence score and particularly the Taylor X study, but also the data we have from the 70 gene assay that she also had in the Mindex study and how that fed into the way you managed her? Yeah, I mean, of course, the Taylor X data gave us very important, encouraging information in the low risk group first, the patients who had scores of 10 or less. We reported on that first. The five-year distant recurrence free rate was, you know, 98, 99 percent. And so you really do with just endocrine therapy alone. So that's, we generally believe that the benefit of chemotherapy really is primarily in reducing those events in that first five-year period. So you're going to see impact or loss of benefit from omitting chemotherapy in the first five years. So we had that information initially. A few years later, Joe reported on the randomized portion that really took the 10 up to 15. We saw that, you know, patients basically scores of 15 or less actually did very, very well. We had further follow-up on that low-risk cohort. So it really, I think, for the recurrence score, it really did show us 
clearly that in everybody with scores of 15 or less, there just was no need to think about chemotherapy. Prognostically, they had a very favorable prognosis, and with endocrine therapy alone, you know, they would have that very low risk reduced further, and they would get the benefit of the chemo prevention, the other things that are important endpoints in patients with ER-positive breast cancer. The interesting thing is that it did, you know, the study was designed, of course, statistically to look at everybody together, all ages together, all the way up to the score of 25. And in that, it really showed you did not lose benefit from chemotherapy when you combined everybody, looked at the group as a whole, all the way up to a score of 25. The interesting thing, though, was when you started looking at subsets, it really looked like that that was true for the majority of the patients, two-thirds of patients who were 50 and above or postmenopausal. But in the younger women under 50, you started to have evidence there that you were probably losing benefit from chemotherapy as you moved 16 to 20 and definitely 21 up to 25. The thing we don't know is, is that benefit that's being lost due to loss of the cytotoxic effect of the chemotherapy, or is it the ovarian suppression that chemotherapy induces, and could you get a similar benefit by being aggressive with your endocrine therapy? That's going to remain an unanswered question, because I don't think realistically we could ever launch a randomized trial to give us the answer. I think without question, some of that lost benefit of chemotherapy is the loss of ovarian suppression, and that's supported by the long-term data from soft and text. You see that that ovarian suppression really does have an absolute substantial effect. So I think it's one of these situations where we're never going to have the perfect trial, the perfect data set to give us all the answers, but when you look at it in aggregate, I think those patients in that intermediate risk group the real important thing for them is being aggressive with their endocrine therapy. The chemotherapy is a discussion point, but I think it helps if you have a patient, certainly a younger patient. The thing that I like about the Taylor X study, the Oncotype Recurrence Score, I feel like it gives us much more nuanced information because I like the recurrent score range. I like the fact that the prognosis varies according to range. The intensity of your endocrine therapy, you can probably modulate depending on your score. Someone with an intermediate score, you probably want to give AIs. You may want to go longer to 10 years. Lower scores, TAM's probably all you need. So for me as a medical oncologist, there's a lot of granularity in the Taylor X data, particularly coupled with soft and text, that I prefer that as a genomic profile to the mammoprint. Clearly, the mammoprint provides information. It can tell you the main thing that we do the Oncotype for is to give us the chemotherapy yes-no question, and the mammoprint gives that same question. So they both provide valuable information, but beyond that, what I would like to know more when I'm counseling my patient, when I'm making long-term treatment decisions, when I'm encouraging them to hang in there with side effects, I like the granularity of the data that we have from the Taylor X, the longer follow-up, 
And I think the report that Joe gave at the recent ASCO that incorporated the clinical risk alongside the genomic risk really is very, very nice information that I think the medical oncologist can take into the clinic. Now, for a surgeon, I don't know that that detail is so important in terms of their day-to-day work, but I think it's important for them to understand that there might be important information their medical oncologist can use from a recurrence score that might not be there with mammoprint if they're getting involved with deciding who orders a test. Because a lot of times, you know, if the surgeon has ordered the test, then I, as a medical oncologist, I'm pretty much, I can't do repeat tests. In this particular case, we got permission to do it because I could argue about the discordance, but it took a lot of work to get the approval to get that mammoprint done. I want you to go through the recent data you just referred to about clinical risk, but first, could you just talk a little bit more about the soft and text trials and how that affected your approach to adjuvant therapy of premenopausal women? Yeah, I mean, I think soft was really critical because it isolated that ovarian suppression information relative to tamoxifen, and because clearly the from the designs of the studies, you know, the U.S. breast oncologists really wanted to see that. We weren't convinced ovarian suppression was something that should be offered routinely. The Europeans doing text had pretty much felt that, yeah, that should be done, and the question is, what drug should we partner with it? So they were coming at this issue from a little bit different approaches, but I think together they give great information because of the consistency across the trial. And then you could combine the ovarian suppression with tamoxifen and AI across the studies and really get very large, robust data sets. So they are useful. But for me, I think the information that was so interesting from SOFT was that patients actually, the improvement going from tamoxifen to ovarian suppression AI, patients got almost that far with the ovarian suppression tamoxifen. They did do a bit better if you took their estrogen levels down further, but when you look at the curves, when you look at the data sets, the bulk of the improvement really took place when you added the ovarian suppression to the tamoxifen, and then the AI took it up a bit further. And I think that's useful for clinical practice because the higher the risk, you know, the more willing you are to at least say, well, let's see how you tolerate an aromatase inhibitor because you have a higher risk ER positive breast cancer. I might be more aggressive with it. But as you move down the risk scale, And this, again, this gets back to the recurrent score because we know those patients with scores 10 or less, they're going to do fine really whether you give them TAM or an AI. On the lower end of the intermediate, the data kind of looks the same way. It's as you get higher where you need to think more aggressively about using ovarian suppression and an aromatase inhibitor. You know, one of the issues, though, is are you going to use ovarian suppression, like, as you mentioned, gaserolin, or are you going to have surgical removal? In this case, the lady had some concerns in terms of genetic risk. One of the risks of using just ovarian suppression is the possibility that you're not suppressing the ovaries adequately, and then your use of an AI kind of doesn't get anywhere. 
How often does that happen, and what do you do to sort of make sure the patient is adequately suppressed? Yeah, I personally will check estradiol levels. You know, I know our clinical assays probably don't have the sensitivity to really show that it's really all the way down, but I do like to see it go to undetectable on our clinical assays. I mean, that's kind of the best I can do, really. You know, and I think the younger the patient, the more you have to watch that, the more aggressive you have to be to really make sure they are shutting down. Because I think if you don't do that, in essence, you're risking them not having any therapy, obviously, is what you're alluding to. Because if the AI restores ovarian function through the LHRH analog, then they're not getting any effective therapy. So I will generally check that. In younger patients, I will do the monthly regimens and I'll check it. If patients get older, if they've had chemotherapy, I think they may be in menopause, I will give them the quarterly preparations and kind of look at eight weeks just to, because I've had a few patients that I thought would hold for a full three months, breakthrough at eight weeks. So I, I don't know, there's just no substitute that I've been able to come up with for checking. So you mentioned this new data that just was presented in Chicago at the ASCO meeting. And there's always been this question of, okay, you have your genomic assay, but suppose you have a big tumor, high grade, you know, clinical factors. And this is really the most, it was so fascinating, the data that was presented on these intermediate risk patients. Can you talk about what was presented and what you think it means? Yeah, I mean, you know, basically what Taylor X did is it took a range of patients with a range of prognostic factors and randomized them to an intervention. Mindac took a clinical profile, clinical risk profile, and randomized it against a genomic profile when there was discordance. So they were doing very, very different things. But a lot of the output from the MINDAC study, really because their primary endpoint was in that clinical high-risk, low-genomic risk group, that was their primary endpoint. There's been this question that we've had about, well, if we took, use their tools for assigning clinical risk and then looked at our data, could we improve the performance, in a sense, of the Oncotype BX recurrence score? And the short answer is, yeah, we think we did, as you said, in the intermediate risk group. What it shows basically, and it's a very simple risk system that you just basically, the grade and the tumor size, you know, you sign clinical high risk or low risk. And in the women under 50 who have the intermediate range scores, particularly those who are 16 through 20, and 21 through 25, if you break those groups up into two subsets by their clinical risk, you see differential apparent benefits from chemotherapy. In the group 16 to 20, where when overall you see, well, maybe there's a absolute percentage point or two improvement, what you see is that when you split it into the two groups, the group who is a score of 16 to 20 and is low clinical risk does well. They have like a 95% distant recurrence-free interval. Chemo does nothing. If they have high risk, then there's actually about a 6% delta between 
how they do with endocrine therapy. They have about an 89%. With chemo, it goes up to about 95%. So it looks like that group of 16 to 20 who has high clinical risk is benefiting from chemo. Again, with the caveat that is it the chemo or is it the ovarian suppression? And I think in the clinic, you have to have that discussion with the patient. We need to do chemotherapy. If you just don't want to do chemotherapy, then we really should do ovarian suppression is kind of how I talk about it, particularly in that group. If you go up to that next group, where you have the higher scores, 21 to 25, you see there the women appear to benefit from chemotherapy irrespective of their clinical risk, though not surprisingly, the high-risk patients have about an 8% delta and the low-risk patients have about a 6% delta. So for me, that's the same discussion with a patient. You know, that's where we do want to take advantage of that. If we do it with chemo versus doing it with endocrine therapy and ovarian suppression, that's where the lengthy discussions have to take place. And again, I personally don't see how we're ever going to do a randomized study to answer that. I think we've got the data. We just have to individualize patient care with the information we have at this point. But just to be clear, when you talk about these patients benefiting from chemotherapy, that's the premenopausal patients. What about the post? Yes, these are the correct. Yeah, these yeah, oh yeah, everything I've said is in the women under 50, majority of whom were premenopausal. Yeah. But just to be clear then, we already know that in general, postmenopausal women with intermediate scores don't benefit from chemotherapy. What it seemed like in this new data set is they said, even on top of that, not only do the intermediates not benefit, but even the intermediates that are at high risk. And the key number I saw there was three centimeters, for example, in terms of tumor size. So still, in the postmenopausal women with the intermediate score, even if the tumor is greater than three centimeters, it looked like they didn't benefit from chemo. Was I reading that correctly? Right, yeah. I mean, there's always the caveat that, you know, in the studies, the percentage of patients that entered TaylorX who had high risk was only about 30%, and you got there with no negative disease. So it's a little bit, you know, you, there is a point where as you get higher and higher, there's a little bit less certainty about it, but it's consistent. You know, it's basically their risk is higher for recurrence, but they just don't benefit from chemotherapy. And that still remains the, fundamentally, that's the most important decision we have to make in our ER positive early breast cancer patients. So in terms of this lady, I think you mentioned she also got denosumab. And I wonder if you could provide an update on where we are today in terms of bone-targeted therapy and the adjuvant situation. Of course, we have a lot of data on bisphosphonates. Where are we today with these strategies as it relates to prevention of cancer recurrence, second breast cancers, and also the difference in efficacy of these different strategies? For, I'm sorry, for you're speaking to the bone-directed? Yeah. So, for example, denosumab versus bisphosphonates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the challenge that we've had in this whole area is that individual studies that were designed as indication studies were all negative. They did not show clear enough benefit that led to regulatory approval. When you do the meta-analysis, you know, there clearly seems to be benefit, particularly in postmenopausal women, from having risk reduction for a distant recurrence. It's not just skeletal recurrences, it's recurrences overall. So there is that 
overview evidence that I think warrants consideration of the drugs. For me, particularly when we use aromatase inhibitors, that their major long-term side effect is adverse effect on bone health. And so I guess I'm maybe it's mentally lazy, but what I tell my patients is, I know it helps your bones. We see that it reduces subsequent fractures. You know, we're trying to cure you, give you a long life. I wanna take care of your skeleton. And it's looking like it also may reduce your risk for breast cancer. So this is kind of where I am. I mean, I routinely employ bone-directed therapy. Now, what you use, that's where you'll get a lot of different opinions. You know, many people will just say, well, we can use oral bisphosphonates because the cost in getting the reimbursement, you know, for the Zomita, for the denosumab is not insignificant very clearly. So I think for me, the data is pretty clear that bone-directed therapy of some type should be done when you're doing endocrine therapy, particularly with aromatase inhibitors. I personally like the, what I guess is somewhat more aggressive, the denosumab based on the ABCSG data. And we've not had trouble with reimbursements with our providers. So one other question, later on I wanna chat with you more about where we are today with neoadjuvant therapy, particularly when we talk about HER2 positive disease. But I also am curious right now how you approach neoadjuvant decision-making in the ER-positive, HER2-negative scenario that this woman fit into, where we know you see a lot less efficacy from chemotherapy than you see with either HER2-positive or triple-negative disease. Are there situations, for example, where you get genomic assays in the neoadjuvant setting? Do you ever use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy? Oh, yeah, we certainly do. Yeah. And that's why I say we will often send for an oncotype if we are considering neoadjuvant therapy to help us make a decision about kind of are we ever going to do chemotherapy or are we going to do endocrine therapy? Because, again, for me, I feel like our in ER positive breast cancer, a major decision tool in our use of chemotherapy are these genomic assays you know, ultimately they become as important as clinical stage, as nodal status. And so I like as much information as I can to inform my decision. If I have a patient that is interested in breast conserving therapy and she could benefit from reduction in her tumor, downstaging of her axillary nodes, I think that's a compelling reason to give her neoadjuvant chemotherapy. If I know I'm going to want to give it, why not give it pre-op? Why not get the benefits? Because some ER-positive women have a PCR and they do have a better prognosis. I think it's important information if they've had the chemotherapy, if they've had a pathologic complete response and they're really having a tough time on endocrine therapy, I'm a little less insistent about hanging in there if I know they've had a very strong PR. If I do surgery, I've lost that potential information. So I just feel like it's become such a useful tool for long-term management that I really, and our group's kind of that way, you know, we, we still will tend to operate if the surgeon thinks that they can get the surgery done in a node-negative breast cancer that's ER positive, we generally operate on that. Where we have discussions are with the positive axillary nodes, the downstaging, you know, that's the gray area. 
And have you used neoadjuvant endocrine therapy in that situation to convert the patient to breast conserving surgery? Yeah, we have. If we get a favorable oncotype situation where, you know, there's no evidence at all that chemotherapy is going to do anything but give that person side effects, and they are interested in breast conserving therapy, but it's not going to be a cosmetically successful operation, we'll put them on and watch. And we don't really have a set duration. You know, on a clinical trial, you have to have a duration to have consistency. But in practice, if the tumor's getting smaller, the patient's tolerating it, we'll kind of just keep going until the surgeon feels like they're ready to go. So, I mean, we've taken some patients out nine months, 12 months before we operate. It also brings up, you know, what might be next for this subset of breast cancer, ER positive, HER2 negative, particularly in terms of some of the strategies being used right now in metastatic breast cancer, just like what happened with tamoxifen AIs, start out metastatic now in earlier adjuvant therapy, and of course the CDK inhibitors, which I'm going to ask you about in a second, and whether those are going to maybe come into the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. But I have to tell you about this case that I heard from Matt Getz from Mayo Clinic, so he has this young woman, 35 years old, ER positive, HER2 negative, locally advanced breast cancer, axilla, nodes, et cetera, except she had a couple of bone mats. So she actually got endocrine therapy. She had ovarian suppression and an AI, but because she had the mets, she had the CDK inhibitors. Well, guess what? She had a CR in the breast and in the axilla. Of course, this is clinically, she hasn't been operating because she has metastatic disease. But maybe you can chat a little bit about what CDK4-6 inhibitors are and whether maybe sometime in the next, let's say, two to five years, we're going to see those in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting. Yeah, CDK4-6 inhibitors have been really a breakthrough drug in our treatment of patients with metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. It's interesting, the research in this area was really developed thinking more in terms of higher-grade hormone receptor-negative disease because, you know, the CDK4-6 proteins are involved with cell cycle control. And so, you know, when they are on, you have a very active cell in cycle. And so this was thought to be a very late common terminal point for multiple activating pathways. And if we inhibit that, you know, we can maybe have an effect. The problem is for that to work, your retinoblastoma gene has to be functional and intact. And it tends to be lost or have problems in those higher grade tumors. And where it actually is present and its functional state is most often the ER-positive breast cancers, and those ER pathways converge on that same cell cycle pathway. So the combination of interruption of the ER pathway, whether you use fulvestrant, whether you use an aromatase inhibitor, you're trying to do the same thing, get less of a drive for the cycle to take place. If you then combine it with something that directly inhibits the cycle, there's been a marked potentiation of the activity of endocrine therapy by combining it with any one of the three drugs. And they actually do have single agent activity, though it's nowhere near what the combination is. Possible exception, abemacyclib seems to be quite active on its own. 
apparently more than the other two, but in combination, the data has really been quite remarkable for improvement you know, in progression-free survival. The really exciting thing that's just come out at ASCO was that we're actually seeing survival, improvement in survival in first-line metastatic ER-positive breast cancer, initially in the Mona Lisa 7, in premenopausal women treated with ribocyclib. That sort of brought up the question of, well, is this something about premenopausal patients? Is it ribocyclib? But now we've heard reported that studies with abemocyclib that are in postmenopausal are also showing survival advantage. So the drugs clearly have been a game-changer in our patients with metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. And the other nice thing about the medications is overall, they have a pretty good toxicity profile. So you get a very effective drug that's reasonably well tolerated. You got to bring that up into the early breast cancer setting. And there have been studies that have finished accrual, both with palbocyclib and with abemocyclib, looking at adding the CDK4-6 inhibitors to higher risk breast cancers, ER-positive breast cancers that have been completed in cruel or in follow-up. You know, ribocyclib is gearing up to do a study now that there was the survival advantage that they're trying to get that study done. So we're gonna have lots of information on how they perform adjuvantly. Interesting thing is the initial pilots done for short exposures preoperatively, I think were a little disappointing because they do show that you shut down proliferation. Now, this has been based largely on the KI-67, which we've talked about not being completely reliable, but when you get your lab says it's you know in the 20s and it goes to one, that movement's probably pretty reliable. And when you're on the drug, it will suppress, but by the time patients were getting to surgery and stopping the drug because it can suppress their white count, when you checked, the KI-67 on the residual tumors had come back. So it, to me, that suggests probably short-term exposure is not going to be enough. It's probably going to primarily be an adjuvant setting, though this case <laughs> would suggest if people are particularly sensitive, that may not always be the case. There weren't a lot of complete responses reported in those neoadjuvant studies, but since she had metastatic disease, how long had Matt had her on therapy? I bet it was more than 12 weeks. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But actually, she herself felt it shrinking down quickly, I think within the first month or so. So I don't know what it was about it, whether her tumor or whether the CDK inhibitor, but it really was really striking to think about it. I mean, you do see higher response rates, correct, in metastatic Oh, yeah, and I was going to say another exciting thing about them is that, yeah, the response rates are higher, the progression-free survival is double, and the thing you see clinically is those responses happen quickly. I mean, we now, you know, before we had these drugs, patients with liver mets, patients with any volume of lung mets, you kind of felt like you needed to get on top of it with chemotherapy. Most of us now will go to these drugs because they can work so quickly and they work for so long. So they really have been a game changer. So I think they're going to definitely have a role in early breast cancer. It's just, I think they're going to have to be around for a while to get an optimal benefit from them personally, but we'll see. The trials have different durations of therapy. The first one we're going to probably hear about is the Penelope study that GBG did with NSABP, which was post-neoadjuvant residual a la Catherine with really high tumor burden. 
that was a randomization to endocrine therapy or palbo for a year. The adjuvant studies have gone two years, so there's going to be, you know, sorting out the optimal duration like there always is. But my prediction is that there will be benefits to these drugs. When do you think we might hear about the residual disease study? I know they had their first interim that they passed. They didn't cross enough to report early, so I think it might be 18 months or so before they get to the required number for analysis. I want to get to HER2-positive disease and really the landmark findings of the Catherine saw. But one more ER-positive, HER2-negative question, which relates to kind of getting back to the same whole concept of biology versus anatomy, and that's the use of genomic markers in node-positive disease. I want to find out where we are today. We've been hearing some great stuff coming out of the Taylor X study, node-negative, but we also have the RxPonder trial, node-positive, percolating along that hopefully we'll see some results for. But to get into that, let's hear about your 57-year-old postmenopausal patient. Sure, yeah. This was a woman who had a screening mammography and had a small 1.2 by 0.8 centimeter mass that was identified. A core biopsy showed a grade one infiltrating ductal carcinoma, very strong intensity staining for ER in 95% of cells, Always a little surprising to me when you see that in ER to see nothing in PR, but she was negative for PR, HER2 negative, and her KI67 was 5%, and her nodes were negative on imaging. So low clinical risk, strongly ER positive, low proliferating based on KI67 breast cancer, and she opted for breast conserving therapy. And when we got all the tumor out, you know, the pathologist still said, yes, it's grade one. Sometimes you'll see the grade upstage, of course. It's always important to wait and see what the overall assessment is. But she did have this 1.4 millimeter focus of metastatic tumor in one of her lymph nodes. So we had talked with her, you know, about being node positive and some of the different assays and with her tumor being low grade like it was, low proliferation rate, I requested the oncotype because I really thought that she'd come in low middle range and all this stuff, you know, I just think there's more, you get more information about the endocrine therapy and the score kind of, I guess, came where you might expect for somebody who was PR negative. She came in at 20. So, you know, she has a score of 20 with a low clinical risk. And so we discussed you know, chemotherapy. She was postmenopausal, so anything she got out of chemotherapy had to come from the chemotherapy. There was not going to be ovarian suppression. And she ultimately decided that she would just go with the AI supported by denosumab. So we have been treating her with that. I do like to get baseline bone densities. I check vitamin Ds routinely. She had osteopenia, had vitamin D deficiencies, so we've been correcting those and have her on denosumab, and she's done well so far. Any symptoms or issues with her aromatase inhibitor? Little bit of early morning joint stuff, but she's actually done quite well, unusually so, frankly. What do you typically see with aromatase inhibitors in the adjuvant setting, particularly as it relates to joints, and how do you deal with it? Well, I mean, I guess the biggest thing that strikes me and as you're taking care of patients is really the variability of the problem. I mean, there are many patients that most patients, if you question them, will say, well, maybe, you know, but there's a, 
I mean, I find that up to a half of patients really just don't seem to have much problem with it, or they consider it minor trivial. But there are that 25% or so, one in four women, where it really does get to be a problem for them. And my first patient actually, she's a nurse, and she got to where she was having a very difficult time at work after she had been on maybe 18 months or so. I mean, it was really starting to impact her. And, you know, she had that higher risk, she had the lobular features. And so what we ultimately did on her was actually, rather than going over to tamoxifen, because, you know, there was the big 198 data that suggested that in lobular patients, the AIs were substantially better than tamoxifen, pretty large set of patients. I mean, nothing definitive, but I think that was a interesting exploratory analysis. We talked about that and we decided what I do sometimes with these people is bridge them over to fulvestrant for a while if their risk is really elevated. If their risk isn't that elevated, I'll just say, let's take a break. I generally will start with a nasterzol or letrozole. So if they have problems, I'll talk about, let's try transitioning to exemestane. But I tend to take them off, give them a break, see if it resolves before starting a new medication. And I actually have a fair amount of luck with that strategy. I really have not, you know, in terms of trying to treat it symptomatically, I'm not aware of anything that really is all that effective that patients want to take long term. And if there's problems, and I'll say, let's go, you know, if they are lower risk, as I said, I'll say, let's do tamoxifen for a while. Because I think the critical thing is to make sure, do everything you can to help the woman stay on an effective endocrine therapy. And so I think you need to be flexible and work with them. So this patient did have a positive node, but also from the point of view, a recurrence score was kind of in the intermediate 20 range. How high would you have been comfortable sticking with endocrine therapy alone? I would assume up to 25, although we don't really know a node positive. But what's your new high, so to speak? Well, I mean, now it's with the data we have, you know, which speaks in a node positive patient, I guess. Because the thing that really influenced on her was the grade one. I mean, if this had been a grade two or a grade three, I would have not. So that influences me because I don't think any of the tests are perfect. They all provide information. And when they're all one way in concordance, I'm much more comfortable with more aggressive thinking when I have things that are discordant. You know, clearly my greatest concern is recurrence and death from recurrence. If there's discordance, I will tend to err on the side. A score of 20 in a postmenopausal woman who doesn't want chemo, that's still a pretty easy decision. But as you say, moving it up much at all, I'm starting to feel like I'm giving something up. But I have no problem with a woman with an intermediate score and one positive node saying, hey, that absolute three or four percent that I'll get from chemo isn't worth it to me. I'm fine with that. You know, to me, it's all about doing everything you can to accurately define their risk in a way they can understand without your drug and then explain what we think the drug will do in an absolute sense. And then they decide if that's worth it to them or not. I think that's a really great description of the process. I was going to ask you, you know, 
You presented both of these patients who had a recurrence score done, but I guess one of the things that's so important to determine ahead of time before you even send anything is whether it's going to make a difference. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm yeah, sure no. there's some women who I'm taking chemo no matter what, and right. there's other women I'm not taking chemo no matter what, and maybe that's not the time to be using a genomic assay. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I see no reason to get a test because a lot of times the really danger zone is where you and the patient have made a decision and you sort of say, well, let's get that and it'll reinforce us. If <laughs> That seems like that's when you're going to get the surprise and go on the other way. So it really is, I think it's important for them to understand that, you know, it only is worth doing this, in my opinion, if we get something, we will act on it because otherwise we're just giving you something to worry about and more uncertainty. It's been interesting to hear you, particularly as it relates to these two cases, really get into sort of the art of oncology and how you sort of shade the way you approach things. For practical purposes right now, how are you approaching the use of genomic assays in people with node-positive disease? Are you just using recurrent score? Do you use another assay? How many nodes are you comfortable getting a recurrent score on or a genomic assay on? Right now, I guess I can't recall having a genomic assay on patients with more than three positive nodes. I think there the decision can be made without that because if you're not giving chemotherapy, you're having somebody who has comorbidity where you're really worrying about the value of it at all or they really are just not wanting it. So it gets into what we were talking about, you know, where will it make a difference? So it's something that I primarily will do with my grade one, grade two tumors who have one, maybe two lymph nodes. I can't remember one with three, but I probably, you know, would still think about it in that situation. What data do we have? Of course, we have the randomized trial cooking out there, the Ponder study. But what data do we already have, you know, retrospective, et cetera, looking at genomic assays in the node-positive situation? The one prospective data set that led to getting the mammoprint on NCCN guidelines and so forth was the MINDAC study, where they did include node-positive patients as high-risk, patients one to three nodes. I mean, it, it is important to you know, acknowledge it started out as a node negative study. The patients with node positive were added later, and they never really break out that high-risk group that I've been able to find, you know, in terms of forest plotting the node positives from the node negatives. But there's really no reason to believe that there would be a big difference. But they did show that in patients who had the high clinical risk, which would have included the node positive patients, higher grade tumors, who had a low score, they did quite well at five years. Their five-year recurrent, distant recurrence-free interval was about 95%. And so it met their criteria for saying that's enough to feel comfortable omitting chemotherapy in these patients, and it was approved on that basis. We don't have that type of data yet with TaylorX because the decision was made to study the oncotype score in responder similar to what was done in TaylorX, though the recurrence score ranges were changed appropriately. But there has been a substantial uptake of the oncotype, even in node-positive patients, sufficient that the company was able to work with the SEER database looking at 
how patients did according to their recurrence score, you know, out to five years with positive nodes. And that data set was on the old range, you know, before the shift. But it's all consistent with the fact that the low recurrence score patients do well with endocrine therapy alone with one to three positive nodes, you know, you didn't have the real clean data. All you knew is that the lower recurrence scores with one to three positive nodes, the majority of the docs didn't give chemo. And those patients did well, a small percentage did. So it's not clean data, but it's supported data. So I, you know, for me again, because I value the Oncotype DX recurrence score so much for managing my endocrine therapy, that's the assay that I prefer, even with the node positive patients, recognizing that we don't yet have the randomized data that I am relying on retrospective data from SEER. There was also data from large study providers, health insurance coverage in Israel that, you know, same sort of thing where they, Israel standardized their use of Oncotype very, very quickly. So they were able to publish some retrospective data as well. It's all consistent. So I'm going to finish out talking about the Catherine trial, and I was kind of flashing back to 2005 when the first adjuvant data came out. I remember, actually, it was in some little motel in Orlando. They had the ASCO meeting in Orlando at that point. And, of course, we saw incredible data come out in the adjuvant setting there from the NSABP, from the European study, and then a few months later at San Antonio, the BCIRG. And since that time, we have seen advances in HER2-positive disease. The antibody drug conjugate, TDM1, came on board, which had been used mainly in the metastatic setting up until now. We saw pertuzumab coming in the adjuvant setting. But how about if I say that last December was the next great step forward for HER2-positive disease since 2005? Agree or disagree? Oh, I think it was. I mean, I think the Catherine results were remarkably robust in terms of the magnitude of the benefit, but also the breadth of the benefit. Because one of the challenges we had going into Catherine is we knew identifying patients with residual disease, we were going to have a lot of heterogeneity. And so there was a question about, you know, how many patients do we need? What type of patients are going to come into the study so we can see a signal and be sure that if there is a group benefit, we don't miss them. You know, these are the sort of things that you work with with design of the trial. And, you know, the remarkable thing was that the hazard rate was 0.5, but it was there across all of those subsets. So really a remarkable benefit, I think, from the therapy. And I think it is a practice-changing study and that the data, I think, challenges us to really think about what would be the role of surgery first followed by adjuvant therapy when we have such compelling information that patients can receive very effective frontline standard therapies. Many of them have a PCR. We know that overall they do well, and the subset that don't clearly don't do as well. Now with TDM1, their outlook is really very similar to the outlook of the women who PCR. So you really now, when you sit down with a HER2-positive breast cancer patient, you can really be very optimistic with her that 
We have a process to go through. We're going to treat you with our best drugs. If they work, great. Then we finish out a year of antibodies. If they didn't quite get us where we wanted to, then we make a change that will get you to about where you would have been had you PCR. And I think that's very exciting information to be able to share with patients now. And it's such an important change in the overall strategy. And, you know, you mentioned 0.5, so essentially cutting in half the number of recurrences. And actually, the original adjuvant trials, I think the hazard rate was also about 0.5, but now you're bringing another sort of 0.5 kick in for the people at higher risk. But maybe you can just go back a little bit. We know historically, particularly when the second anti-HER antibody, pertuzumab, came in, we started to see a lot more people getting neoadjuvant therapy to take advantage of that. But then this other strategy came in, as you say, for what, maybe half the patients who don't have a pathologic CR. Right. And can you talk about the design of the study and the key findings from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, Catherine was basically a study that was targeting women whose initial biopsy was HER2 positive, who received one of the global standard regimens. We just, you know, we tried to be pretty loose with that because we knew we'd have to do this study globally. Didn't require an anthracycline, but allowed an anthracycline. Didn't require two antibodies, but allowed an antibodies. And only 20% of patients got two antibodies, largely from the U.S. accrual. So we had a lot of flexibility in terms of the design, and we decided that we would allow patients in the study with any amount of residual disease. That was a design issue early on. You know, Fraser Simmons' work with RCB had certainly suggested the, the zero to ones when you look at all breast cancers. I mean, the RCB1s do as well as the PCRs, so would they have enough events? Is it worth the potential toxicities? Because when we launched Catherine, there was still some uncertainty about hepatotoxicity. So we were taking it from metastatic into early settings. So, you know, these were things that we had to think about. But we basically tried to make it as broadly inclusive as we can. And we had pretty involved stratification factors, you know, how they presented inoperable versus operable, ER positive, ER negative, single versus dual HER2. And then finally, at surgery, did they have residual nodal disease? We thought those were the important things to get right. And when you look at the data, those were good things to pick because you do see that patients with inoperable disease, patients with ER negative, patients with residual nodes have a higher event rate than their counterparts. But everybody, irrespective of how they did with trastuzumab, had this 50% reduction in their risk. So the, you know, the inoperable patients who came in inoperable and when converted to operability, but still had lots of residual disease, they still had a pretty high event rate but that was cut in half with TDM1. It went all the way through. Even the subset of patients who had less than a centimeter residual tumor and negative lymph nodes, they did much better with trastuzumab. They had an 85% disease-free interval there when we were looking at it. That went up to 90 with the TDM1. So everybody benefited from the therapy which was very gratifying. So that was basically what it was. The study was set up so that, and this was an interim reporting boundary. We sized the study 
looking for about a hazard of 0.73. We thought a 25% reduction would be clinically meaningful, but we built in the interim and it crossed because it was so much bigger than what we had thought. But as part of that, since we knew we were gonna be taking it to the regulators and they would wanna know about survival, it was planned to do a survival analysis, but there's so few events in both arms there's no difference. The trend is in the right direction, but you can't make any comments about that. So we still will need to follow these patients to understand the full magnitude of the benefit over time. But as we know in HER2 positive, that can take years now because patients do so well. And I guess we should point out that the key randomization factor was the post-op therapy for the year, the traditional sort of adjuvant anti-HER therapy and the control arm getting, I guess, trastuzumab or trastuzumab pertuzumab, for example, but the other arm getting TDM1, as I mentioned, an antibody drug conjugate. The other one that's out there used a lot in lymphomas, particularly Hodgkin lymphoma, brentuximab, vidotin. Can you talk a little bit about what an antibody drug conjugate is, what exactly TDM1 is, and what it's like giving that to a patient for a year? Sure, yeah, the immunoconjugates are very exciting for medical oncologists. I think in a sense, they really are realizing the ultimate promise of the monoclonal antibodies. When the monoclonal antibodies were first developed, there was a recognition that these drugs might be a way to selectively deliver toxic payloads to cells that are making the target, but it took a long time to take that straightforward concept into reality. It's not easy figuring out the right linkers, getting the right targets and things of that type. But now that the companies have worked through this, we really are seeing that these drugs are quite effective with substantially reduced toxicity. They are chemotherapy. You still see chemotherapy like toxicities with TDM1. You can see hepatotoxicity, thrombocytopenia, but the intensity of it, the frequency of it, markedly reduced so patients are able to take the therapy. In TDM1, the chemotherapy drug targets the mitotic spindle, and drugs that target the mitotic spindle do tend to cause neuropathy, so that's a potentially problematic side effect that oncologists have to pay attention to, and sometimes will require early discontinuation of the drug, particularly when you administer it sequentially after they had initial taxane-based therapy. We do have information on TDM1 as neoadjuvant therapy from the Christine study, and you see really very little neuropathy in that study relative to what we were seeing in ours. So it's not all TDM1, it's TDM1 following the initial taxane. But basically the idea of the immunoconjugate is you load it up with chemotherapy drug, on the monoclonal antibody, then the FAB portion binds to its target, it's internalized, and then the chemo is released internally. So you get the cancer drug to the cancer cells and hopefully spare the normal tissue. Of course, it's not perfect. Some of the chemotherapy dissociates before it gets into cells, so this is why you do have side effects. But this is part of the amazing art and science, I think, that the companies that are working on these, because they keep improving them as they, not surprisingly, you know, there are companies now that there are new compounds being developed that carry more molecules per antibody. With TDM1, it's about three. Some of the newer ones have six to eight. 
They use different chemotherapeutic drugs, things that target topo one that don't have overlap with taxane. So, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement about these drugs potentially in HER2 positive as competitors for TDM1, but we also have a number of agents in the triple negative space that are showing promise as well. So I want to finish out with a case that came into my email and I was like, oh, great, I'm talking to Chuck. Let me ask him. But before we get into it, I've got to ask you, I'm just kind of curious Can you remember the moment when you found out for the first time the results of the Catherine trial and how you felt? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was actually, the IDMC looked at the interim data on Friday afternoon, and I knew that they would be letting Norm Walmart know about it as chair for NSABP Foundation. I was in finishing up notes from my previous week in clinic, and I just, I thought, I should be hearing something from Norman by now. And, and I, so I, but he didn't say, I emailed him and I said, so I, I haven't heard anything, so I guess we didn't cross. And he texted back, oh, we crossed big time. <laughs> it was like, you gotta be kidding. Uh, it was just amazing. Cause I didn't, personally, frankly, I did not expect to cross early. I really didn't. I mean, I was amazed when I saw, cause then of course I said, well, can you, how much, what was the hazard rate? Can you share that? And he finally told me what that was. It's just amazing. And then as you see the data set, see the consistency, it's just really, really fun. It was a lot of, a lot of fun then to, to show it to other you know, thought leaders and such and hear the reaction and stuff. Very gratifying. I'll bet. Yeah, what a moment. So here's the case, all right? It sort of ties into what we're talking about. But as always in practice, Gets a little more complicated. Dr. Leisure's practices in Reading, Pennsylvania. So here it is. 42-year-old woman presents in 2016 with clinical stage 2A right breast cancer. She has ER positive, HER2 positive, PR positive disease, so-called triple positive disease. She gets TCHP, common neoadjuvant therapy today, probably the most common one, and has a complete path CR. She gets trastuzumab afterwards, which is interesting because I think nowadays, I think a lot of people would use both, but she got trastuzumab and she goes on tamoxifen, then she goes on an AI, then she ends up having her ovaries taken out. However, she then presents with a very early but sizable, quote, in-breast recurrence with skin changes suggesting the possibility of local inflammatory changes. So this is local recurrent disease, it sounds like. Triple positive again. And the surgeons are saying, how about giving her neoadjuvant therapy? Mm -hmm. So what he wants to know is, what are your thoughts? He says, it's been almost three years since she had her previous treatment. Maybe he should go back to that, TCHP. She hasn't seen an anthracycline. Maybe consider offering the AC and then say HP. He says, what about TDM1? Of course, that's not the way it was studied in the Catherine trial. But he says, if I could get it, would you use that? And he also brings up neratinib, the TKI that's used in the post-adjuvant setting. We can get into that. But (laughs) so also he says, any thoughts about her anti-estrogen therapy? He could go back to XMS thing because now she's progressed. In spite of the fact that she's on an AI, uh, another option would be fulvestrant, the estrogen receptor down regulator. 
that you were mentioning before. He says, should I get an ESR1 assay and look for the ESR1 mutation? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, and maybe that'll change his approach. So as is often the case in breast cancer, there are a lot of options, maybe not as much data as options, but any thoughts for Dr. Leisure? And I assume on repeat biopsy, it is HER2 positive, it's triple positive, it's the same thing back. Correct, same thing. And metastatic workup isn't showing anything, but she's got a locally advanced kind of inflammatoid relapse is what I'm hearing, right? Right, exactly, right. Yeah, they said that they reviewed the prior tissue and it's pathologically similar, triple positive also. Yeah, okay. Well, in this case, I would go back and give her things that I didn't give her the first time in a sense. Assuming she's not having any residual neuropathy, if she didn't, I would go back and see what I could get out of my THP, the thing I gave her before, see what it would do. I would like to know that in terms of activity. I would think I probably could only give her maybe eight to 10 doses of paclitaxel before she's gonna start getting neuropathy. This is the sort of person that I might find out if I could possibly get nab-paclitaxel just to see. But if I could, I would. I would go to nab-paclitaxel to give her a different taxane preparation, maybe less neuropathy. But if it wouldn't get approved, I'd go ahead and do the paclitaxel. But I'd watch her very carefully, planning to then sequence to, and assuming she's responding, then I would sequence to AC, assuming her heart's fine, of course. And then I would hope at that point, I would be ready to operate and see what I have. And then I would expect I'm gonna have residual disease. And frankly, even if I didn't, I'd probably go ahead and give her TDM1. I think a question I get that you hear from Catherine is, well, gee, how do you know that the patients who had PCR might not have had some risk reduction had they taken it? Are you sure? PCR says no. And the honest answer is, well, no, I'm not sure about that. We only studied non-PCR. You know, there is room for improvement in PCR patients. GBG showed their data that when you have positive nodes at presentation, when you start out with T3, T4 tumors, even with PCR, you do have higher risk for recurrence. So even if she did get to a PCR in this situation, since it's her second time through, I would go with TDM1 based on the Catherine data. I would always be looking at my residual disease to guide my endocrine therapy. And I think the obvious thing with triple positives is what about CDK4-6 inhibitors? Because of, you know, the Alliance is doing a phase three study looking at that in patients with metastatic disease. She doesn't have metastatic, but it's recurrent locally advanced, she undoubtedly has occult metastatic disease, even if her scans aren't showing it. So she's one that I think there's so many options, but I do think it makes sense to be aggressive and treat her with curative intent in this situation. Not think in terms of palliation, because I assume she had radiation, so she probably won't be able to undergo radiation again. So you're really needing to get as much as you possibly can out of your systemic therapies. And I would be pretty intense about it because I do think there's a chance that you could get a durable control of the disease, you know, quote, cure still. 
particularly since he didn't stick with pertuzumab. I definitely go back to the pertuzumab. Yeah, that's a good point. It also raises a question I was going to ask you about the Catherine study, which is so interesting, which is you have these patients who've already gotten chemotherapy. So they've had neoadjuvant therapy, mm-hmm. and in a way, they're kind of getting chemotherapy again. It's being delivered, and yet you see this huge bump. Any thoughts on biologically why this happened? I've heard theories about it. Now, I mean, my assumption has been that these patients, for the most part, most of them, their residual disease is still HER2 positive, and the immunoconjugate is simply delivering a higher dose to those cells. The interesting question that I've heard some people talk about is, well, maybe what's happening is it's dormancy and cells are coming back, or when you take away the trastuzumab, pertuzumab, HER2 expression is coming back stronger and the drug is getting in. We don't know. I think the drug, that 50% tells us that something is going on more than what we, it just can't simply be that the immunoconjugate's working that well. It's got to be something's going on about that prior exposure to taxanes that definitely cytoreduce these patients. I mean, because most patients get substantial cytoreduction. It's just, does it all go away, yes or no? And then you were withdrawing that therapy and coming in with something else. There's something going on there, because that's, you know, a lot of people say, well, maybe we can flip them. And I think that's a question, but I would be careful about that, particularly with the Marianne data. I mean, I, but we see in Christine that if you get TDM1 as neoadjuvant therapy and you have a PCR, you do very well. You know, so the question is, if you don't, then are you as salvageable with HP, AC, whatever you use, as you are with TDM1? That would have to be a clinical trial done to sort all that out. And is that a, you know, the reason to do it would be the perspective that, well, it's better to limit my exposure to my more toxic chemo to the half that need it. And you know, it'll be fun to see if that study can come to fruition, but it's an obvious question that's going to come up after the Christine data. Interesting. The other thing we've got to sort out in HER2 positive, of course, is there are subtypes of HER2 positive, clearly. You know, and we all know they're there. The, a problem we've had with developing HER2-targeted therapy is that the presence of HER2, trastuzumab worked in everybody. I think as you go beyond that, we're starting to see the different tumor types respond differently to additional therapies, and that's where I think we're going to have to get smarter about the subtypes of the HER2-positive breast cancers, particularly as we're trying to de-escalate and do these things. 